This morning, 15 through the end of the chapter, as we continue a verse-by-verse study of this amazing epistle that Paul wrote to the church at Rome. So let's turn there and uh, begin our study of God's Word by reading together these nine verses. He says in verse 15, he says, Because we are not under law but under grace, may it never be, may genata, the, one of the strongest adversative statements there is in Greek. And he says, he says be, uh, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves of, for obedience, you, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of sin you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now vacation. And he says, so then, you were slaves of sin. So for when you were slaves of sin, then you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed, for the outcome of those things is death. Benefit resulting in sanctification or set-apartness to God, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. May God bless the reading and studying of his word. Now, in the last few weeks, someone once told me that uh, in days long past, the Ivy League schools of Princeton and Yale and Harvard used to have their law students, this is a long time ago, read the book of Romans to learn the art of argumentation. Because Paul's arguments in this book are incredible. You might even say they are ironclad. He shows the futility of the natural man in verse one and or chapter one and the futility of the religious man in chapter two and beyond a shadow of a doubt in chapter three ends need all culminated in chapter three and four uh, and man's need to be justified by faith and faith alone in Christ to attain to the righteousness of God. He brings us to the conclusion that it's totally of grace, it's totally because of the grace and love and mercy of God, and that's it. No man it doesn't just keep, no man earns his salvation, no man purchases his salvation. It doesn't matter. It's all of grace. Which he magnificently argues out in chapter 5 as he powerfully presents Christ as the one and only Savior, Adam with him. It's amazing as he compares the anti-type Adam with himself and, and uh, with Christ and, and just the, the conclusions he comes to. And uh, it's amazing. In chapter 5, verse 21, he says, So that as sin reigned in death through Adam, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then he anticipates the skeptics, as we saw last week. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Does it glorify God when we sin and God forgives us? Grace and, uh, you know, when we live licentious lives and 
we blame it on the grace of God. Does that glorify God? He says, what may it never be? A million times no. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? It's a good question. In Christ, we, 3 through 14, he argues, as Pastor Craig showed us last week, that in Christ we died to sin and were made alive to God. That we were both baptized into Christ's death as well as his resurrection, that we might walk in newness of life. Then he concludes that set first 14 verses with these statements in verses 11 through 14. He says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Okay, it's not that we are dead to sin. We still sin. We still have bad attitudes. We still lust. We still do things that dishonor God. We don't habitually do them, but we do do them. But we're to consider ourselves as dead to sin, not alive to sin. But we're to consider ourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus, he says. And then he says, therefore, we do not let, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instead of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. If you're familiar with Ephesians, it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Every man is dead prior to coming to Christ. He dies the second death, Revelation 20 tells us, when he's judged. The first death is physical death, but he's dead spiritually the whole time before he dies physically without Christ. Then he says, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are under not under law, but under grace. Argumentation. Now in verses 15 through 23, he continues that argumentation. And he drives home the practicality of that thinking in the believer's life. And he does this by basically asking three questions that, that he outlines in the text and which demand a sort of self-evaluation on our part to determine whether we're really related to God or not, whether we're really in proper standing with God or not. You ask yourself these questions, and you really come to the conclusion that either, yeah, I'm in proper relationship with God, or, yeah, I need to get into proper relationship with God, even though I am saved. And the first question is found in verse 15, and it's this. Are we flaunting God's grace? As you look at your life, are you flaunting God's grace? Are you ostentatiously, ostentatiously living in sin and just depending that someday God will, will forgive you anyway? Paul anticipates that question. He says, what then? Shall we, say, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? May it never be. Interesting question. Paul says, what then? What do you think? What's up? Are we free from all moral restraint because Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf? Taken care of? Now, the legal aspect has been taken care of. Are we now free to do whatever we want? Because Christ paid the penalty for our sin. Are we free to live any way we choose to live? despite what God's Word says and despite obedience to God's Word. And uh, now the Jews, in that sense, exalt grace. 
Now, the Jewish legalists saw Paul as speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Out of one side, exalting righteousness, but out of the other side, giving Christians a license to sin all in the name of God's grace. And I think that attitude is pretty prevalent in our world, too, among, even among Christians. Now, the apostles' retort is, nothing could be further from the truth. May it never be. No, no, a thousand times no. The purpose of God's grace is to free us from sin, not to enslave us to sin, and forgive us further ability to sin because we'll just be forgiven and forgiven and forgiven and forgiven, which is true. How many times do you forgive your brother? Well, seven times 70. But do we flaunt the grace of God by sinning openly and proudly and arrogantly against God and his word? Paul says, how then could God's grace possibly justify us continuing in our sin? The saved sinner. In the life that gives no evidence of moral or spiritual transformation in the inner man gives no real evidence of true salvation. You know, sometimes people come to you and go, well, you know, I, I'm living a life, I really don't know if I'm saved because I just keep doing this and this and this. And my youth aren't saved. Maybe you need to reevaluate and really give your life to Christ and really live for Christ and uh, because... You know, that's the proof of true salvation is that we live in a righteous manner because we have died to sin and become alive to God. It's not, well, I just continue to sin. Antinomianism or anti-law is not on the menu for true believers. And although he cannot fulfill the law, only that on our behalf, he does not disregard or flaunt the law of God either. Grace gives no such privilege. You know, you obey me, you'll keep my commandments. And then three other times he says, the proof that you love me is that you keep my word. So he repeats that twice, and then he says, the proof that you don't love me is you don't keep my word. So he states it two times in a positive, three times in a positive, one time in a negative. And really, the grace of his word, it puts us into proper relationship with God. Not that we're trying to prove ourselves to God. It's not that we're trying to earn his favor or something. But after puts us in, it's the proof that we're in proper relationship with God. Look at uh, Titus chapter 2. Love this portion of Scripture because it really spells it out perfectly. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That's not teaching universalism. It means that the grace of God has appeared in Christ offering salvation to all men who will believe by faith. And what else does grace do? Righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from what? From every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Not zealous for sin, not zealous to redeem us from every lawless sin and be zealous for good deeds. And zealous means zealous. You know, when somebody does something, uh, it's funny, you know, in Nehemiah chapter 3, there's, there's this cataloging of who rebuilt what part of the wall, you know, and 
and uh, then again the portion that he did, and that, and uh, that's pretty amazing. But out of that whole chapter, that's the only guy that did it zealous. He says, "That's how we're to be zealous for good deeds." He says, "These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you." Season out of season, whether they want to hear it or not, preach it. Don't let anybody disregard you. The message here is think that God's grace gives us an excuse to live sinful lives. Don't tread on God's Christ's gracious love and forgiveness. Don't flaunt the word and too often that's the case. You say, but we're not under the Mosaic law. Well, we're not Old Testament saints, right? You realize there are hundreds of commands in the New Testament. There's 37 in the book of Ephesians alone. There's 22 in the book of Colossians alone. There's 19 in the fifth chapter that tell us who we are in Christ and, and uh, what he's done for us. But also the Bible is, the New Testament is full of imperatives of how we're to live light of that fact. And that's what Paul's driving at in this passage. Christ didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill Matthew 5 and the law. And really, as we receive the free gift of eternal life, that's grace. That's justification by faith. That's uh, that kind of demonstrated love and mercy on Christ's part demands a loving, righteous response on our part. And we serve him out of love. We're no longer bound, but we're not free in regards to righteousness, we still need to serve him out of love and respect and honor and God wanting to glorify what you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the what? Glory of God. Everything is about the glory of God. For all have sinned and fallen glory of God. We're opposite the world. We're not buying their stuff any longer. We do not We do not flaunt the word of God or the commands of God because we're not under law but grace. Don't even think that way. You know, that's why we have confession, right? Of sin, we confess, we move on, God forgives. But we don't take advantage of confession either. We don't just say, oh, I'm going to sin, confess it later, and do what I want, and then I'll confess it later. Be filled with the Spirit moment by moment that you might do the things that God has, has laid out for us. Redeem the time for the days are in it. You know, just over and over and over in Scripture, we're exhorted to live that way, in a way that honors and glorifies God. So we don't, first of all, we don't flaunt the grace of God. And if you're flaunting the grace of life to Christ in an honest way, ask for the filling of His Spirit because now you have the power to resist sin and saintedness in your life. We'll talk about that in a moment. Now, in verses 16 through 19, Paul, Paul takes this argumentation a little deeper, and he, in essence, asks the questions, whose slave are we? Or was it Bob Dylan who sang, uh, you're going to serve somebody. It may be the devil and it may be the Lord, but you are going to serve somebody. And it may be yourself. You have two choices. 
And Paul gets that across very pointedly throughout the whole. When you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in choice death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Again, he only lays out two choices ultimately. He doesn't say, well, you know, there's a lot of gray area in between and you can do what you want. And, you know, uh, that's not what he says. It's either sin leading to death or obedience to God resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God, he says, that uh, though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you are committed. Because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness or worse lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification or set-apartness to God. Think about it. When you present yourself to someone to obey them, you become their slave. You willingly choose to do their bidding, they become Luke's master. Remember the temptation of Christ in Matthew chapter 4 and uh, Luke chapter 4? Satan, one of the temptations, Satan takes him to a high mountain and says, shows him all the and worship me. Well, Christ defined the real issue when he said, he said, you shall worship the Lord, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. If, Satan, or if Christ were to have bowed down to Satan, he would have become his, what? His no man's slave. And therefore he said, be gone, get out of here. And Satan went away for a more opportune time, sticked, and in the process has tormented many others with that same sticked. But that's the deal. Who are you presenting your life to? And, and in Satan in the flesh, or you can choose obedience to God and His Word resulting in righteousness. The first choice leads to death, both in time and eternity. The other leads to life and life eternal. And that's been Paul's argument all along. This world of sin literally will kill us. Life in Christ. That's why we're dead to sin and alive to God. That's the whole point theologically. Um, John makes this statement. John is so black and white. I love the guy. First John, he says, looking forward to meeting him. No one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteousness, is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices movement or habitually practices sin is of the devil. There's been a movement among, particularly among younger Christians, that uh, called antinomianism. Uh, the guy that took Sure enough, he's ended up, he ended up having an affair with somebody and blah, 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 you know, all the sin and debauchery of the whole thing and, and longer in ministry. You can't live that life. You cannot dishonor God and think you're serving God at the same time. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? Sin. right? He was the one who brought sin into the world. Adam was simply his conduit, right? He says, no one who is born of God 
practices sin because for a season in the Spirit of God just starts working on your heart and mind and you can't stand it any longer and you find that you're really a believer. You know, one of the great proofs that a guy's a believer is that when he sins, he feels it. He experiences the grief and misery of the Holy Spirit. Obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness or the one of God habitually practices righteousness or the one who does not love his brother. Isn't that interesting? Love what is going on. Otherwise, your salvation is very questionable. So in the world, we only have two choices. One is death. One is life. One is Christ. That's it. No other choice. You see, the life characterized by sin, by opposition to God, the will and His Word, is sin's slave or Satan's slave. The life characterized by love for God and His Word and living a righteous life where God receives the glory you know, I was with a guy this week, and I uh, was kind of disappointed. I'd, I'd played ball with him years ago, and we were talking about the night I was looking, and he said, well, you know, my life would be a billboard for righteousness. And I just looked at him like, are you serious? I said, what about pride? How's that one? And he's expelled from heaven because of his arrogance and pride. There's a lot of good people out there, a lot of nice people. Uh, I'm probably even nicer than I am, or you are. But uh, when it comes to God and it comes to humbling themselves and presenting themselves to God, sad reality. So the question remains: Who are you presenting? Who are we presenting our lives? Well, Paul answers that for the Romans in verses 17 and 18. Let's read it again. He says, but thanks be to God, he praises God first, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the... He says, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now notice several things there in salvation, two verses. The apostle thanks God, first of all, for their salvation, that they were no longer subject to the slavery of sin that leads to death. Nothing to do with it except they put their faith in the Savior, right? They were saved solely by the grace and power of God, not by their own efforts. And that's the point of the first six chapters. So he thanks God for their salvation. Thanks God that God entered their life, opened up their heart, took away the crust of sin. All of us, they were slaves to sin, but no longer. The Greek verb tense here indicates a past reality freed from sin, with the ongoing present results, freedom from the power of sin. It's a beautiful thought, isn't it? You know, I've often said over and over again that, that uh, prior to becoming a Christian, you were a slave of sin. You had to do what your master wanted you to do. Be from the now you have the choice. You have the power to be free from the power of sin 
the indwelling Holy Spirit, greater is he who is in us than he that's in the world. You don't have to do it. You can operate in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can operate in the strength of God. I can do all things through Christ. Strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. And you don't have to fall to sin. I don't care how strong the temptation is. I don't care what the drug is, what the, you know, the fruit. You don't have to fall to that bad attitude at work. You don't have to fall to whatever is enslaving you uh, attitudinally, life, and that kind of thing. You can surrender that to God and present your, your life to Him for righteousness. It's an important thing. You increase your choices by one. The most being that salvation takes place from the inside out. You know, we sing that song, from the inside out. That's where it's got to take place. You know, old thing, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come and continue to come into his life. God and his word and a new obedient heart that holds to doctrine and the Word of God. The, the teaching, verse 17, it says, to which we were committed our lives. You know, the truly saved person has a great desire to know and obey God's Word. In fact, that's one of the surest marks of genuine salvation, isn't it? Colossians 3, 6, another. We need to know the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is what? Inspired by God, God and righteous and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God would be adequate, equipped for every good work. You know, it's impossible. Freed from sin, verse 18, we have become slaves <coughs> of righteousness. And that demands knowledge and understanding of God's word. Sound doctrine leads to sound practice. Right Rightly dividing the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15, leads to right living or righteous means. Whose slave are you? Are we slaves of sin in this world? Or are we slaves of God's righteousness and slaves of obedience to God's word? As you look at your heart, what, what's it telling you? Although the heart is desperately, who are you presenting your life to, to be a slave to? Now, in verse 19, Paul explains why the master-slave example or metaphor. This is pretty interesting. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. We're all weak in the flesh. For guilty and further lawlessness... Uh, that's probably the way it should be translated because it uses the word lawlessness twice for you know, grammar, but the word further is inserted there. He says, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. Now, any Roman especially would understand that analogy. At the time, Paul said that 70% of the city of Rome was composed of slaves. Isn't that interesting? 70%. They had a good military and you didn't matter. But everybody was a servant or slave of somebody, almost. So no one would miss a master-slave relationship to illustrate the deeper spiritual point of commitment to God and to the Word of God. 
were slaves. He understood that, what it meant to present yourself as a slave, because most of them were slaves at the time. And you presented your life to your master to serve him, and you did whatever he asked you to do. Even things that you shouldn't probably. And he makes a very simple spiritual point, and it's this. Slavery to sin and impurity and lawlessness leads to further or greater expressions of sin, impurity, and lawlessness. And he's been making that point all along. In Romans chapter 1, you know, he says they exchange the glory of God. Says God the glory of man and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Then in verse 24, it says God gave them over to impurity, to dishonor the bodies among them. He's talking about sexual immorality that we see rampant in our society today. And then two verses later, he says, and then God gave them over to degrading passions, homosexuality, lesbianism, and just all this perverse stuff that's going on today. Uh, what you would consider worse sin than the sin that is already worse. But it's worse sin. It's further down the, the, to the bottom of sin. And then he says, and he makes this verses later, he says, and God gave them over to de a depraved mind. That's when the mind's gone. That's when the mind can't even put two plus two together and come up with four. They come up with whatever they want. That's where right is wrong and wrong is right. Once a society gets to the depraved mind state, the society of heart, unless there's a radical transformation of hearts, and that only takes place with Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel really is the only answer to the world's problems. It's not in politics. It's not in more throwing more money at schools. It's not in all these idiotic things that we're pushing today, but it's in the kid's life because only the gospel transforms a man's life or a woman's life or a kid's life. That's it. Have the power to live a reformed life. So that's the point Paul's making. Then he says, whereas when we present our members as slaves to righteousness, it results lives are set apart unto God, and we live habitually Christ-like lives. That's where a person's life is really an example in their life. They're mirroring the beauty and wonder of Christ and his life in their life and displaying to the world that that who Jesus Christ is, not how good they are, proclaims, but, but who can find a faithful man? And he's talking about faithful to God because everybody's talking about how good they are. And you look at their, you, you know, you start scratching the surface of their life and you go, are you kidding me? But anyway, the examples of these two illustrate this, but uh, I thought of Ted Haggard, uh, pastor of a mega church in Colorado who one day he's preaching about 10,000 people. Huge church. I, I actually saw it when we were, were in Colorado Springs and just a mammoth monster place. And he was preaching one day against homosexuality, the presentation on TV. And he goes, that's one of my customers. And he went, he went to the news and said, that's but the thing is, how did that man ever get there? 
That's, that's what disturbs me. He had a wife and five children. How did he ever get to that he wanted to, you know, and all that stuff? You know, it started small, obviously, with a seed, and then he nurtured the plant. He's having nurture grew bigger and bigger and bigger, and finally, he's having a homosexual affair that he's paying for. Whereas D. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote, he says, as you go on living this process and practicing it with all your might and energy and all your time, you'll find that the process that went on before in which you went, went on from bad to worse and became viler and viler is and holier and holier and more conformed unto the image of the Son of God. I love that statement. That's Romans 8, 28, according to it. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. And you look at certain situations people are in, and you go, how can that be you know, for our good? It says, those He called, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the point. Adversity to Christ and all those things don't separate us from the love of Christ. What they do is they immerse us in the love of Christ and cause us to grow in our relationship with Christ and our love for God as He sustains us. Uh, life is tough. You know, because the point of life in this life without Christ is death. People just live to die. Try and find their enjoyment and whatever along the way. But our point is that in Christ we're made alive. And everything we face in this life, it'll just serve to make you more Christ-like as you deal with it. You become you're growing in Christ-like. You see, no one stands still spiritually or morally. Either you're growing in sin and pride, or if you're a Christian and living disobediently, you're slipping farther and farther back into your practice of righteous living and becoming more Christ-like. So the question is, whose slave are we? Because who are we like the one we serve? Who are we obeying? Now the last question Paul asks to help us evaluate our lives is 20 through 23. He says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Interesting statement. Or shame. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin, he's using the word, literally the Greek word is fruit. You're deriving your fruit or, or uh, you know, wage to God, whatever you want to call it, resulting in sanctification, set-apartness to God, and the outcome, eternal life. And I like that, don't you? You know, if you look, stuff happens, right? And, uh, but when you have eternity in your eyes, when you have it in your mind and heart, you can go through anything. You know why? Because it's going to end right, right? It's going to end right. I'm going to walk in heaven for eternity with Jesus. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul begins by telling us sin's 
slaves are free from the demands of righteousness because it's foolish to preach reformation to sinners. You don't just say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and everything will be okay. It's not. It may go on for about two or three weeks. That's why in Alcoholics Anonymous programs, only two out of 37, I read one time, conquered alcoholism. Because you can't do it in your own strength. It's impossible. The situation keeps coming and gnawing at you, and, and uh, so easy to fall. One affirmation much. He said, many unsaved people, of course, do not think their lives need reformation, much less transformation. The world is full of people who are decent, honest, law-abiding, helpful, and often declares that apart from salvation through Jesus Christ, all people are slaves of sin and are freed in regard to, that is, totally separated from and unrelated to God's standard of righteousness. Remember, God's standard of righteousness is perfection, not being better than your drunk neighbor next door. God described his own good works and religious accomplishments before salvation as rubbish or dung. Isn't that interesting? Philippians 3, 8, he goes to Hebrews, whole accolade, you know, born of the tribe of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, on and on, a Pharisee. As to the law, he says, found blameless. He says, but... Now, since that's true, Paul then asks, what fruit or benefit were you having or thriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? Your former way of life was only ultimately about death, spiritual as well as physical death. So what benefit is there to hanging? Why drag the corpse along with you? You don't have to baggage a smell, doesn't it? Why drag the baggage along with you from your former life? Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. Don't drag out, dredge up. We are to leave the former life in the dust of death of this world and walk with Christ as a new creation, verse 22 says. He says, therefore, what benefit, or excuse me, verse 22, but now, having been freed from sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Listen, the old slave, the one enslaved from that life, self and Satan, the only fruit he derived from that life will ultimately be death, but now and for eternity. But the new slave, the one emancipated from sin, self, and Satan, and now enslaved to God and righteousness, receives the fruit of transformation and sanctification and forgiveness of sins, Colossians 1.14, and citizenship in heaven, Philippians 3.20, Romans 8.17, and will forever be with Christ in the new heavens and new earth. That's the fruit that comes from our life with Christ, Right? Not death, but life, and life eternal. So why would we ever think of uh, or entertain thoughts of the logic of this argument Paul is presenting? I mean, it, it's so profound if you actually meditate on it, you just go, man, I am just stupid as a stationary, and I really need to listen to this. But unfortunately, 
Many times we do listen to uh, the flesh, and uh, oftentimes the lust of the flesh. Former life seems so, so uh, inviting. It's so much easier to float downstream than to swim upstream against the current of the world. It often seems so inviting, so alluring. But what's the benefit? Do we derive any real benefit from it? Let it lie in the grave. That's Paul's closing statement. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of the argumentation of life in Christ Jesus. This is the great capstone to the argumentation of these first six verse chapters. All that this world of sin and suffering has around it. I remember seeing a movie one time where this little kid goes, what's the use of anything? We're all going to die. In true. It was like, wow, truer words were never spoken. But in Christ, we've been made alive, even if you die. Death is just the entry into it. That's the beauty of it, that it's all going to end well. But in Christ, because of the once for all, all-time sacrifice and resurrection of his son. But remember what our premise was here. Do we sin that because we're under grace and not law? Keep in mind this free gift, this gift of grace is not cheap, as so many think. It comes with the following stipulations, and I'm going to explain why these stipulations. Verse 2, he says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 4, that we might walk in newness of life. Verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 17, slaves of God, obedient to the word of God. Verse 19, slaves in righteousness resulting in sanctification or set-apartness to God. In other words, the gift of eternal life is free. All it asks is that you are properly related to God in Christ. And that's salvation, isn't it? To be properly related to the Father through the Son and dwelt by the Spirit. That's how we define salvation. Relationship is everything in the kingdom of God. And righteous, godly living reflects that fact that we know God and are properly related to Him. It's not legality, it's relationship. Who's your master? Who are you trying to please? Are you flaunting the grace of God by living for yourself or... Are you uh, for this world? Are you, are you uh, <coughs> flaunting the grace of God? Are you truly slaves of Christ? And have we really left our former life and embraced the new life we have in Christ? I just want to challenge you to... Some of this message has probably been hard to hear, but I want to challenge you to really concentrate on those three questions this week. And really evaluate your walk with Christ, and, and, and I know I have, and it's, it's not often a pretty picture, but, you know, we need Christ, don't we? We need to understand that properly being related to Christ is to live in a manner that will be worthy of him. Not that that will save us, but it honors God, it glorifies God, and that's the point. So let's pray.
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how clear, Lord Jesus. Thank you for Paul as the defense attorney for the Lord Jesus Christ uh, as he presents the gospel in, in just a hundred different ways. Lord, I pray that we would honor you by our lives because we're under grace, that because we're under grace, we wouldn't be heir, desire sin. We would just be blessed to be your children and uh, to be heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ and citizens of heaven and be forgiven, redeemed, all those different things that you have blessed us with. And out of that would come a, a righteous life just to say thank you, to love you, earn your favor, Lord, but to give you favor. And Lord, we, we love you and we praise you and just ask that you would bless these words as, as weak as they are, but uh, Lord, bless these words to our minds and hearts as we meditate on them this week. For we pray in Christ's name, amen. Let me just leave you with Paul's words to the Ephesians. He said that you would be strengthened by his power, by his spirit in the inner man. And he says that Christ, with and depth of Christ's love and and be filled all the fullness of God. And then he says, now unto him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all we can ask or think, according to the power that works within us. So in case you're wondering if we have the power to live a righteous life, because you've got the righteousness of God in you through the person of Christ. So let's go, let's just go with that thought that the power to do it, choose to live righteously, and God will give me the power to do it if I allow him. Father, thank you again for today, and uh, thank you for your word. We submit to present our lives to you as your slaves, that we would be slaves of righteousness, not of our own flesh or of what this world has to offer us. For we pray in Christ's name, amen.